The trial of the century has arrived. Bill Kunkel has had to navigate through some very murky waters in order to put his witness list together. There were some very serious decisions that had to be made, starting first and foremost with whether or not the state would charge David Cram and Michael Rossi, or whether they would use them to testify against, for lack of a better term, their partner in crime. As you've listened to the tapes throughout the course of the season, Mata Sr. spent a lot of time focusing on Cram and Rossi, as he was convinced early on that the state would use the pair against the creep at trial. Because of this sneaking suspicion, he did everything in his power to get Gacy to slip up and spill just exactly how much these two men knew about the thief of lives and his dastardly deeds. He would never end up getting Gacy to crack and spill the beans about his former employees. Now, the way that it works, as both sides prepare for trial, is that they must provide the other side with witness lists early on and supplement it as time progresses. The surprise witness thing that you see in movies and on TV is not a real thing. Now, that is not to say that it has never happened in the history of American jurisprudence, because it has. But there must be some serious extenuating circumstances for the judge to allow a witness who was not disclosed by either side to testify. If the judge is going to allow testimony of the mystery witness, he will give opposing counsel the opportunity to interview the witness before they take the stand. So while the concept makes for great plot twists and turns in movies and books, the reality of that particular situation is much, much different. The judicial system is not a fan of surprises, especially in criminal cases, where it triggers issues of constitutionality regarding whether or not the defendant is getting a fair trial. So these witnesses are prepared and tendered early on for the purposes of both sides having the opportunity to interview the witness if possible, so as to prepare for whatever the witness may be bringing to the table when they take the stand. Now, if you're wondering if it's okay for the defense and the state to interview the witnesses that appear on the other side's respective lists, the answer is not only yes, it's actually a crucial part of the job. Now, as far as state's witnesses go, defense attorneys will typically send out a private investigator to speak with the witness. This proposition holds true for the state's witnesses as well as their own. The reason a private detective is sent out or accompanies the lawyer is because that if that witness, for whatever reason, gets on the stand and tells a different story than they told previously, you need that private investigator there to testify as an impeachment witness because the lawyer can't take the stand and testify at trial as to what they saw or heard. We refer to these witnesses as provers. You will hear this exact scenario play out in season two of Defense Diaries as the state tendered a witness that had made a very damaging statement, and we needed to see if she would be willing to talk to us through our investigator. It was high drama, but you'll just have to wait for that. Now, these witnesses have no obligation to speak to either side, and the state nor the defense cannot instruct their witnesses not to talk to the other side, but they can certainly inform them that they don't have to talk to them. And they do. They always, always do. Typically, witnesses for the defense are interviewed by police officers, which frankly is far more intimidating and it seems much harder for that witness to say no. So in order to try and even the playing field in an act of gamesmanship, the defense in preparing their witness list literally took hundreds of random names from the phone book and listed them as witnesses that may be called at trial. 
I know, I know. It seems like a shitty underhanded thing to do. But remember, the state has all the resources and all the money that it could ever require, including entire law enforcement agencies, to follow up on these witnesses. To be honest, this bit of trickery massively pales in comparison to the shit the state and law enforcement pulled in this case. The fact of the matter is that more often than not, defense attorneys get stonewalled when trying to speak to state witnesses in preparation for trial, much more so than the state does when they are trying to speak to defense witnesses. It's one of the more frustrating elements of practicing criminal law from the defense side, but you take it in stride and try to handle what is to come during cross-examination. So Kunkel and the state are struggling with what to do about Cram and Rossi. Do they offer them immunity from prosecution in order to convince them to testify? Do they charge them as accomplices? Or do they take the risk and let the defense call them during their case in chief? In the beginning, of course, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's totally up to the investigators. They're still investigating them, and I've got no problem with that. The police were after them like crazy. They didn't like them. Uh, I mean, the Rossi's driving around in six car. Well, he came up with all the title papers, and it turns out Gacy did all the signaturing. Gacy did all the forging. Uh, you know, uh, anyway. And, and the story was, I mean, Rossi's story was that Gacy had told him that there was a guy that had been killed by an outfit, by the outfit, when he, he professed always to be part, you know, a friend of the outfit. Uh and that uh, that's why the car was available. And, but he forged all that stuff himself. And, we, you know, again, if he had taken the stand and let us into it, we were ready to put on uh, people to say to say that, you know, an expert to uh, say, yeah, this is all uh, John Gacy's work. And uh, all of the, uh, I think a lot of the investigators from Des Plaines or the sheriff or otherwise, always felt that they knew more than they were owning up to, but that they probably weren't really accomplices in the killings themselves, uh, possibly in the uh, disposal of the bodies. But uh, you go back to the digging the trenches. They were not the only ones that dug trenches for bodies. There were other employees that were perfectly normal people that no one no detectives or anyone suspected of anything uh, that also went down there and dug trenches. There were, uh, when they dug the trenches, and then this is not only their testimony, but Gacy's uh, statements in some of, you know, I've seen all these recent things, all these tapes. I've, I've heard that all the, the, the uh, tapes from the PD investigators before, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in any event, uh, Cram and Rossi uh, were told, along with, and when these other people worked down there, it was the same thing, that there would be, there it was marked out. He would go down there and mark out with stakes and spray paint or whatever the exact lines that they were to follow for the insertion of the so-called drain tile and so forth. And if they deviated in the least amount from the prescribed plan, he'd go crazy because they were getting too close to a body. 
And not now not only did he say that, but they said that and these other guys said that. Okay, so that's that's one. Now, could it have made should it should it or could it have made them suspicious? Sure. But do I believe they knew there were bodies buried down there? I don't think so. But in any event, the police were hot on them. Uh, now, my memory is, and I've heard since different people say different things about this, but my memory is that both of them were put on lie boxes, and they both passed. Now, I'm not a big fan of the box. I have too many personal situations that I recall from cases, both as a PD and as a state's attorney, where two people, you know, would tell radically opposed stories and both pass. Uh, or when the same person, you know, would flunk, but would be corroborated by later found evidence to be, be absolutely right. You know, it just, it's not perfect. Is it a, is it a nice tool for store detective managers and uh, employees and yeah sure it's fine but it's just not reliable in my view we didn't grant them immunity we had several prep sessions and lengthy i did rossi i don't remember who did cram probably egan but i'm not sure you know could testify not only to their own participation in digging trenches but other others on the construction crew Obviously, they could also testify about significant sex parties over there, as we called the living victims. Uh, lots of people engaged in S and M and other kinds of bondage and rough sex and so on uh, with him uh, by consent or for money or for fun, in their view. And uh, so, you know, that was well known among the crew and. Uh, both of them ultimately uh, admitted to having a relationship with him, but I don't think either of them admitted it on the stand. Mm. That's their choice. Of course, the defense is not made privy to the decision-making process of the state, and Cram and Rossi were listed as state witnesses right from the get, which only increased my father's consternation that the state was going to use these particular men to nail his client to the wall. Remember, as cops were closing in on Gacy and had interviewed both Cram and Rossi and had submitted them both to lie detector tests, Gacy would grill them immediately about what they had said and what they were asked, which seems to be indicative of someone that, that someone being Gacy, being extremely concerned with what they knew and potentially could give up in terms of his activities. Also, recall Gacy's confessions. He would always ask right away whether they had Cram and Rossi in custody before he would start talking. The thought process behind why I think that mattered is that if they had been taken into custody, Gacy would have been more forthcoming about their potential involvement because it then becomes an every-man-for-themselves situation, whereas he knew if they hadn't been arrested that they must not have talked because there would have been no way that they wouldn't have been arrested for something. Now, Jeff Rignall was another witness that presented problems for Kunkel. Remember, he wants to show the planning and evasion that went into everything that Gacy was doing with his victims. And Rignall was a living victim of exactly what measures Gacy would take when he would abduct his victims. Yet, Rignall is cut from the state's list, and he is gobbled up immediately by the defense. Think about it. 
How rare of an occurrence it must be to put a witness that your client brutally raped and attacked for two days on the stand to testify on his behalf. So while the state felt that Rignall's story showed planning and a rational mind, the defense thought quite the opposite about the exact same story. They believed that Rignall's story was a perfect example of just exactly how deranged and how incapable of controlling his impulses their client was. Either way, after getting screwed by the police and the state repeatedly after he was attacked, Jeff Rignall was finally going to get to tell his horrible saga for the entire world to hear. Come hell or high water. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 32. Last episode, we left off with the defense team getting shut out in terms of all of their motions to suppress and quash, leaving little else for them to focus on other than getting their client in front of as many world-renowned mental health experts as possible and prepping their witnesses for trial. Garippo has set a trial date for January 7th of 1980. And there is still much work to be done to make that date happen. Namely, figuring out, if in light of the massive amount of publicity that this case has garnered, whether or not it's possible to find 12 people that have not only heard of the case, but have not formed a definitive opinion as to the creep's guilt. I mean, think about it for just a minute. Recall any high-profile case that you've heard about over the last decade or two. Have you formed an opinion as to the guilt or innocence based on what you've read or heard in the press? If you're being honest, the answer is always yes, because it's human nature. The problem with that is that you are hearing stories that are only providing that someone has been number one arrested, and you are also only getting facts that law enforcement has leaked out. So the real question becomes for any prospective juror, knowing that you have already formed an opinion, is can you put that aside? and objectively listen to the evidence and form an opinion based on that alone. Of course, I realize that that's incredibly hard to do because, well, I'm human. And while I like to believe that most people go into it with good intentions, overcoming that preconceived notion is near impossible. Reflect on how many times you've ever changed someone's mind on an opinion that they have on Facebook. Right. Never. Well, it's the same concept here. Welcome to the wonderful world of being a defense attorney. So as January 7th arrives, the public at large is eagerly anticipating that the trial will be beginning in earnest. However, the wheels of justice turn slowly. And it is on this day that Garippo is to rule on the defense's motion for a change of venue. The defense has argued that there's a pattern of deep-rooted prejudice against Casey. Yeah, no shit and that the pervasive and emotionally packed media coverage is to blame. The defense in preparing for this motion to change venue did two things, both of which were on the county's dime. 
First, they hired a polling company to survey residents in counties in Illinois to see what they knew and what they felt about what they knew. They also hired a psychologist named Richard Ney to study the articles that had been running in the newspapers from all over the state for the past 13 months in order to try and determine which articles had been the most prejudicial to the creep. Now, his opinion was that, without question, obviously Cook County, namely the Tribune and the Sun-Times, which ran the most prejudicial articles, citing that 142 articles had run in the Trib and 114 had run in the Times. Now, the five counties that were on the shortlist, all of which had a decent-sized city to select a jury pool from, include McLean County, Winnebago, Champaign, Peoria, and Sangamon. Now, Garippa went into this motion knowing damn well that a Cook County jury was never hearing this case. So the most instructive aspect of what the defense introduced was the data about the amount of publicity that took place in each of the counties. Ultimately, it was Winnebago County, which is where the city of Rockford is located, was found to have run the fewest articles, which was merely 35. And that was selected as the county where the jury would be selected from to hear the case of the people versus John Wayne Gacy. In order to create a jury pool, you're not just going to bus stops and picking people up. No, there's a process. So the first thing that has to happen is that jury notices have to be sent out. And in this case, it would have been done immediately. So once Winnebago County took care of what they needed to do in order to get a jury pool put together, at the time that they got it done, they would then give Garippo notice. At which time, all the court personnel, the lawyers, the clerks, the bailiffs, the judge, and the creep would be taking the hour and a half trip to Rockford to select the jury in the Winnebago County Courthouse. Now, after the jury would be selected, they would then be sequestered in a hotel in Chicago for the entire duration of the trial. Because of all these moving parts, Garippo cannot give an exact date by which all of this will occur. But there's one thing for certain that he will be keeping it on a very, very tight leash. So January 7th comes and goes, and the victim's families must continue to excruciatingly wait. And at this point, both sides are ready for trial in terms of their witnesses are lined up and they're ready to go. But you can't do a damn thing without a jury. So everyone is in the same boat, waiting for this damn thing to start. On the morning of the 25th of January, Garippo receives word from the court administrator of Winnebago County that the jury pool is ready and that they can start selecting a jury as early as the following Monday morning, which would be on January 28th. And with that, Garippo informs both lawyers and the press that the jury selection in the case will begin on January 30th in Rockford, Illinois. Upon getting this information, the Cook County Sheriff begins immediately to make arrangements to transport the creep from Cermak Memorial Hospital to an undisclosed location in Rockford. Now, Mata and Amaranti drive out to Rockford on Saturday evening in order to check into a hotel and start preparing, which happens to be the same night that Gacy is transported, Hannibal Lecter style, under cover of darkness to Rockford by a convoy of police vehicles that rivals that line of cop cars that chased Jake and Elmwood Blues for 107 miles. Early Sunday morning, Gacy is moved to the county jail, and Mata and Amaranti visit their client one final time to review the psychiatric reports with him before trial starts. As you can imagine, tensions are high, 
and the nerves of the two young lawyers are frayed. It's hard to explain the mindset that one is in at the precipice of a trial of this magnitude, where the stakes are as high as they can get, and having the knowledge that the world will be watching. It's literally as intense as you can get. The lawyers are finalizing their opening statements. They're making sure that their trial binders and their evidence are in order. They're reviewing all of the reports of the police and the experts, making sure that all of the witnesses are subpoenaed, preparing their direct and cross-examinations of the witnesses, having no idea who and in what order they will be calling witnesses. See, the state has a witness list that currently stands at about 300 people. Now, the state is not calling 300 people, and the defense has to try and determine who, in fact, they will call and prepare accordingly. And the same goes for the state. It's a massive amount of work. And the entire time, your mind is racing about what lays ahead, which is everything. On top of all this, the first order of business to take care of when the gavel hits the bench on January 30th is what I consider to be the most crucial aspect of trial work, and that is selecting a jury. Now, I've discussed during the pod the difference between a bench trial, where a judge hears all the evidence and decides the fate of the defendant, and a jury trial, which is where 12 people are selected from a pool to hear the evidence and determine guilt or innocence. Now, Gacy's case is a jury trial, and I asked my father whether a bench trial was ever contemplated by Gacy, because that is one of the three fundamental constitutional rights that sits firmly in the discretion of the defendant and the defendant alone. The other two are whether to plead innocent or guilty or whether or not to testify at trial. Now, of course, the attorney can advise on these matters, but the ultimate decision is left to the defendant. Now, Gacy's response was hell no, but it's not always such a cut and dry decision. If there is a complicated legal concept that may be lost on a jury who are not schooled in the ways of the law, such as, say, the insanity defense, then a bench trial may be the way to go. But the numbers are against you. All you need is one person, one incredibly strong person, who can hold their ground in the face of 11 others who may be raging against them in order to get a hung jury. Now, a hung jury does not mean that Gacy walks. He would be 100% tried again. But it can give you the opportunity to evaluate what worked and what didn't during the first trial. In the same breath, though, it seems an insurmountable task to get 12 individuals to unanimously come to the conclusion, after hearing the evidence, that you have been hearing for the last 31 episodes, that this monster's life should be spared. So, yeah, being a jury is a big deal. And if you're wondering, how do they pick a jury, Bob? Well, you're in luck. Because it's your favorite time, it's my favorite time. It's picking a jury in a criminal trial time. So if you're a registered voter, you've probably received jury summons in the mail at some point in your life. And as opposed to saying, cool, I get to sit on a jury, you most likely said, son of a bitch, I don't have time for this shit. And I get it, I really do. But I cannot impress upon you just how important the civic duty is. The entire judicial system is built around it. Now, I always tell my friends that are summoned and who are immediately thinking of ways of getting out of it to reel it in and do the opposite and try to get on the jury. 
There is simply no other experience like it. Sitting in judgment is a heavy burden, maybe the heaviest that we have in terms of being a citizen, but it's also totally absorbing and fulfilling, and most likely, you'll never forget it. So when you get the summons and show up with the hundreds of other people who are also dreading jury duty, you have no idea going in what type of case that you'll be selected to hear. It could be criminal, it could be civil, and you will have no idea until you are herded into the courtroom with all the other potential jurors. Now, at some point during the process, you were sent a general information sheet, which requires some background about you. Now, this form ultimately is given to the lawyers so that they can get some idea of what you are about from the very limited information that you provided. Now, the first thing that I do is I jump on social media and try to find out a little more about you. Well, this person likes to post pictures of their cat and food that they cook. Now, that kind of innocuous stuff doesn't tell me much. However, if you're posting politically relevant material, now I'm getting somewhere. Because you see, going into a trial, depending on the facts of the case, lawyers are looking for what they would consider to be the perfect juror. Not for every case, but for that case in particular. Now, here's an example. If I'm defending someone who may have caused harm to a child, I do not want mothers on my jury because never fuck with a mama bear's cub. So in this case, I asked my father who their perfect juror was and why. All right, well, um, you're aware that we went to Rockford. Drove to Rockford, stayed there uh, a couple of nights, probably two days. I didn't think we were finished. Maybe three days. No, we did. We got some good answers, too. One veneryman stood up and said that he, he thought he should be executed immediately. <laughs> Seems to me that there were more men, but it wasn't a significant percentage more. We wanted older people. We didn't want young people. We wanted older people and uh, rather... Uh, not too intelligent, man or woman. Didn't make any difference in this case. Of course, we were thinking women would be more sensitive to the situation. So older men would, when I mean older, I mean pretty much older, 60s, 70s. We had no, no illusions about being in a fair county. I mean, you can't uh, very well get rid of 33 bodies where you go, the facts come with you. So you head into the process as the lawyer with a good idea of what you'd like your jury to look like, figuratively speaking, knowing that you're not going to get 12 people that you want on your jury. Well, why is that, Bob? Well, dear listener, that's because of something called peremptory challenges. Both sides get a certain number of challenges in a case, depending on the type of case and depending on the state. In Illinois, in a capital murder case like Gacy, both the defense and the state are given 20 challenges. With these challenges, you can excuse a juror without cause or without having to tell the court why you don't think this juror is a good fit. So both sides sit with these challenges in their pocket as the next step in the process occurs. Now this next step is called Hordire or Vordir, depending on who's saying it. And this literally translates as an examination of a juror or a witness by the judge and the attorneys. 
So basically, both the judges and the lawyers get to question the prospective jurors. Now, oftentimes, this is done in panels of four or six jurors at once to save time. The judge typically goes first, and if it's a criminal case, the judge will read what the defendant is charged with. And they will ask the pool general questions, like whether or not they know the witnesses, whether or not they know the lawyers, the parties, etc. They will ask if there are any other reasons that you can't serve on the jury, such as health conditions, bias based on the type of charges, and things of that nature. Now, things like I have to work or I don't have child care is typically not sufficient to get you off. I've seen judges honor the request of somebody who is a planned vacation with airfare purchased, but that is the exception, not the rule. It's tough to get out of jury duty. So once the judge has done his job and thinned the herd, it's the lawyer's opportunity to ask questions. Like anything in the law, it's not a free-for-all. The judge will ahead of time tell the lawyers the areas they can get into and the areas that they can't get into. One thing in particular that can never be addressed to the jury are the facts of the case. They call that indoctrination, and this can never, ever be done. So say, for instance, if it's a domestic violence case, the lawyer can ask general questions about whether anyone in the panel has been a victim of domestic violence because it potentially goes to bias. Now, say, for instance, I ask that question and a juror raises their hand. I can follow up with a few questions, such was it the juror personally or was it a family member? And if their prior experience will allow them still to be fair and impartial. I can tell you this, that the attorneys appreciate nothing more than a juror being honest and answering that question. Because at the end of the day, what all the attorneys and the judge in the room are looking for are jurors that are truly capable of being fair and impartial. Because if that is something that you know in your heart of hearts that you cannot do, just say it. I mean, the judge can try and attempt to rehabilitate the juror by asking, even if they have a bias about a certain issue, can they and will they listen carefully to the evidence and follow the law, despite the acknowledged bias? If the answer is no, I can't, the lawyers will ask that you be excused for cause, which does not eat up a peremptory challenge. If the answer is yes, the judge may rule to keep them on, but more likely than not, the defense attorney will use a challenge to excuse them because it's simply too big of a risk that they won't be able to ignore their bias, even if subconsciously. The mind is a tricky thing. So when the judge is done, the attorneys continue asking their questions in an attempt to glean some knowledge about what makes the jurors tick. Now, if a juror makes it through the judge and both the state and the defense without being removed for cause, such as bias that they can't overcome, and they aren't excused by a challenge, they have made it onto the jury. Once either the defense or the state has used up their challenges, they have no ability to remove a juror that they don't like. There is a massive amount of strategy that is involved, and a whole bunch of going with your gut. It's a fascinating part of any trial that really never gets any attention. But as I said earlier, nothing, and I mean nothing, is more important than jury selection. So this process continues until such time that 12 people are selected as jurors, and then typically between two and four alternates. Now, once the entire jury is impaneled, the judge swears them in, and the game is afoot. So there you go. Lesson over. If you've personally gone through the jury process, 
This may have been telling you what you already know, but the strategy behind picking the jury is where the real action is. Let's continue rolling. So Garippo tells the bailiff to bring in the prospective jurors, and they do put them in panels of six. However, what they're doing here is they're keeping five of them in a room, and they're questioning each prospective juror individually. As you can imagine, this will be an incredibly time-consuming process. So the courtroom slowly fills with the good people of Rockford, Illinois, which is a city about 90 miles northwest of Chicago. It's closer to the border of Wisconsin than it is to the city. It's surrounded by rural farmland. So the pundits and the talking heads have expressed the opinion that the defense should be concerned about the ability to impanel a jury that will buy into the insanity defense as they carefully use the word diverse in comparing the people of Cook County to those of Winnebago. Not sure what they were getting at back in 1980, but I have a pretty good idea. Now, we're not going to spend an abundance of time reviewing the jury selection in the Gacy case because it took days to get a jury panel. But I will delve into some of the voir dire because, well, it's interesting, as it illustrates exactly how difficult it was to find 12 jurors. The following is a male juror being questioned by Garippo. So it will go Garippo asking the question and the prospective juror answering it all the way down the line. Question. If you were not convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the acts, could you sign a verdict form finding him not guilty? Answer. If it was right, yes. Pardon? If it was okay, yes. What do you mean by okay? Explain. I've gone over it several times. I need you to explain it to me. Well, if he was sane, he would be guilty. Insane, he wouldn't. Right, Your Honor? Right. Okay. Uh, Forget the insanity aspect of this. If the state failed to convince you beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant actually committed the acts in the indictment, could you sign a verdict of not guilty? Yes, I, I think so. You said you talked about this opinion you had. Could you overcome that opinion about the defendant having committed those acts if the state failed to live up to its burden to establish his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt? Let me ask you this. Now, this is a juror asking the question. Yes. You use a psychiatrist in this case, correct? Pardon? Right now, forget about the psychiatrist. No, you ask the question you want. Go ahead. Well... If the psychiatrist checked him out as being insane or whether he was sane, it would still be hard for me to make a decision with all those lives. Amaranti chimes in. With all those what? Judge? Kunkel answers for Garippo. Lives. Garippo tells the juror, I'm going to excuse you, sir. So that guy was excused for cause because he didn't think that he could overcome his bias, no matter what the evidence proved. End result? He gets launched. Now, this next juror we will listen in on is a 40-year-old female meatpacker. Garippo is asking her about her opinion of the insanity defense. Question, have you read any news articles or heard any discussions or even thought about whether or not the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity is a good or bad provision in our law? No, sir, I can't say that I did. Do you have an opinion as to whether it's a good or bad provision in our law? Well, sometimes I think it's a loophole, but that's just my personal opinion. 
well, could be a loophole. Could you imagine it also as a valid defense? No, sir. You couldn't accept it. I'd really have to take all the facts. Well, let me ask you this. Once the defense of not guilty by reason of insanity is raised, the burden is on the state to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is actually sane. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. Now, if the state fails to establish beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant is actually sane, the jury would have to return a verdict finding him not guilty by reason of insanity. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. Could you sign such a verdict? Yes, sir. You could? Well, yes, if the law defines it as such. Realizing that he doesn't have to prove that, you understand that. Right. Have you formed any opinion or thought about the mental condition of the defendant? At the time it happened, yes, I, I questioned it. You questioned it. What did you say? Why so many? How could he? Do you think as far as the mental condition, do you think, well, he must be crazy or maybe he must know what he's doing? Did you think in those terms? Yes, I, I thought he must be crazy. You thought he must be crazy? Yes. All right. Now, you use the term crazy, and I've used the term crazy, but in court, we use the term insane. Insanity is a legal term. Uh-huh. It may differ from the one that you regard as your concept of being crazy. Right. Your idea of being crazy may differ from what the law regards as insanity. Right. You understand that? Yes, sir. Would you follow the law defining insanity even though it may conflict with your idea of what crazy is? Uh-huh. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. Have you read anything or heard anything regarding the fact that the defendant is alleged to be a homosexual? Yes, I do remember hearing that. You remember that being part of the news stories, is that correct? Yes, sir. Does the fact that the defendant is charged with deviant sexual assault and indecent liberties with a child, and these are alleged to have been of homosexual nature, if you have any feelings with respect to homosexuality, could you put those aside in rendering your verdict in this case? No, sir, I could not. What effect do you think that would have in rendering your verdict in the case? Being a mother of a teenage son, I think a lot, I'm afraid. Remember, mama bears. The fact that you have a teenage son and these victims are alleged to be teenage boys and young men, do you think that would have an effect on you? Yes, sir, probably. Do you think that it would have such an effect that you could not render a proper verdict in this case? Truthfully, yes, I think so. So, what's Garippo going to do with this? Excused for cause, of course. So, these are not cherry-picked out of the transcript. This was prospective juror after prospective juror. But, any lawyer would rather go through a hundred jurors than take one that wasn't being truthful about their ability to put their personal feelings aside and follow the law. So, as I said earlier... 
all lawyers want to hear a truthful answer in this regard. Otherwise, the case is won or lost before it even starts. The next prospective juror is a retired widow with a 34-year-old son. Karipal makes his way through the insanity plea questions with her and now gets to the homosexuality questions. Question, have you read anything regarding the fact that the defendant is alleged to be a homosexual? Answer, I don't think so. Okay, well, were you aware before yesterday when I gave some general discussions that the deviant sexual conduct and indecent liberties counts in the indictment alleged homosexual conduct? Were you aware of that before yesterday? Did you know something in general about the homosexual aspects of the case? I would just assume that this was the reason for all of this. I see. If you have any feelings regarding homosexuality, could you put those aside in rendering your verdict in this case? I don't think so. Why is it that you don't? Well, I've just been brought up to think it's an abnormal thing. Well, how do you think it might affect your deliberations here? I don't know how to answer that. Now, there will be testimony bringing out evidence of homosexual conduct in the course of the trial. You've stated that you find this to be abnormal. I don't know if you mean that by way of abnormal and normal. I, I would mean it to be repulsive to me. It's repulsive to you. Is it so repulsive that you could not give the defendant or the state a fair trial on the issues as they are presented to you? Well, yes, I think the answer is yes. Now, Garippo sends this woman back to the room with the other jurors. He then asks the defense if they plan on making a motion for cause. The defense declines to have her removed for cause. This actually stuns me. Does it stun you? It should. The defense states that they want clarification on an area that they think that the answer was unclear. Garippo then calls her back out. Question, do you remember that I said I'd come back to the area about how he must have been involved because of the bodies being in the house? Do you remember how we talked about that? Yes. Could you follow the law that I will instruct you on relative to proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Just in general. I'd find it hard. Okay, so if you were representing Gacy here, what would you do? Do you make a motion for cause? Use a challenge if Garippo didn't excuse her? Well, the defense did neither, and obviously the state loved her. So she ended up on the jury, which I find to be a pretty frightening reality. Now, I could go on going through these jurors with you for hours. I really could, because I find it fascinating. But on the off chance that you don't, but mostly because, again, this would turn out to be a 10 to 15 hour episode, we're going to cut it short. So at this point, we're going to fast forward through the process. But I can tell you this, the entire process was like this. People had opinions. People had beliefs. People had biases. Not just some of them, but most of them. This was an incredibly difficult pool to find people that weren't dead set already. But this is no shocker. We knew this going in. These were just such different times. What a mountain to climb. So after four days of this, questioning the prospective jurors one by one, the full jury and two alternates were impaneled. The jury ended up consisting of seven men and five women, a majority of which were over 40 years of age. So with that, the case of the people of the state of Illinois versus John Wayne Gacy 
is ready for trial. But before that happens, everyone needs to get back to Chicago, the jurors need to be transported to the city, and they need to be put up in a hotel, and the case is set to start in earnest on February 6th, 1980. Now, just so you have a clear understanding of how the trial process works, it goes like this. The state puts on their case in chief first, meaning that all of their witnesses are called and all of their evidence is entered in. Then they rest. Then it's the defense's turn. Before that occurs, opening statements are made by both the state who goes first, then the defense. The defense, by the way, has the option of not opening directly after the state gives their opening statement, but instead can opt to give their opening statement at the beginning of its case in chief. Now, it's rarely done because I think the prevailing thought is that you don't want the state's opening just sitting there maybe for days without ever having heard the defense's side of it from the get. But I think it cuts both ways because after three weeks of testimony, and you're not talking about your run-of-the-mill testimony, but testimony about a man killing 33 young souls, who in the hell is going to remember what the defense said at the beginning of the case? And it's a damn shame because my father's opening statement was brilliant. Frankly, it was the high point of the defense's case. But don't take my word for it. You'll hear it for yourself. Read by Mata Sr. Some 43 years after the fact. And when you're listening, just imagine, if you will, a 34-year-old attorney at the absolute prime of his career, standing in the well of the courtroom, addressing the jury without a thing he is saying written down. No notes, no outlines, nothing. It's all coming straight from his mind and out of his mouth. Now, what may be lost in the performance by my father at this stage of his life, as he's 77, is more than made up for by its absolute genuineness. On the morning of February 6th of 1980, the massive structure known as the Layton Criminal Courthouse, located at the intersection of 26 in California in the city of Chicago, is overrun with throngs of people ranging from court observers, concerned citizens, the families and friends of victims, and of course, the media. The attorneys for both the state and the defense had arrived early to prepare for the opening of the case, all of them filled with anxiety and anticipation as the day had finally arrived. Now, it's hard to describe where your mind is as an attorney during trial, but the world that surrounds you fades away into nothing more than background noise. My father sits quietly at counsel's table, deep in thought, as he contemplates the opening statement that he is going to give in the most important case of his career. The same holds true for Assistant State's Attorney Bob Egan. As the rest of the state's team sets up the demonstrative evidence in the well of the court, contained within the massive courtroom, which appears to be carved out of marble, and which is adorned with mahogany judges' panels on the walls and the foreboding bench which sits high above the rest of the room. They have blown up pictures of the known victims and placed them on a large wooden easel. They have done the same with Gacy's hand-drawn map of the crawl space and the dates that the boys went missing on small nameplates. Various diagrams explaining the differences between various psychiatric disorders, Venn diagrams of those disorders, and the definition of criminal insanity. There's maps of the city of Chicago marked with the location for the creep hunted. Hundreds of additional photographs lay flat 
spread across multiple tables. The photographs containing images of the victims, the personal items kept as souvenirs and recovered from Gacy's home, and the crawl space, the horrific dig that revealed Gacy's horrible secrets, and in the center of it all sat the wooden frame of the trap door of the crawl space, where so many young men were dumped into as if they were nothing more than refuse. All for the benefit of the jury, so they could see with their own eyes the evil that was perpetrated by the man who sat before them and whom was waiting to be judged. The bailiffs and the courthouse personnel are charged with the task of administering who would get in and who wouldn't. And as you can imagine, it was the hottest ticket in town. Naturally, the victims' families were given priority over everyone, and they were placed in the first three rows of the bench seating that made up the gallery of the courtroom. The mothers and fathers who will testify are not among them at this point, as witnesses are not allowed in until after they have taken the stand and testified. It's safe to assume that Kunkel will be calling these poor souls first, so that they may observe the administration of justice firsthand as it is applied to the monster who stole their boys' lives. The loud murmur of whispering voices stops suddenly as Garippo enters the courtroom and takes a seat on the bench. The case is called to order and Garippo is announced to the courtroom by the bailiff. He instructs them to bring in the jury. The jurors silently enter the courtroom in a single file line and they fill up the seats in the jury box. Three men sit at each of the two council tables that sit 10 feet apart from one another. At the state's table, it's Bill Kunkel and his two assistants, attorneys Bob Egan and Terry Sullivan. At the defense table, it's defense attorneys Robert Mata and Sam Amaranti. And between them sits the accused, John Wayne Gacy, dressed in a dark blue suit, sporting a fresh haircut, courtesy of the jailhouse barber. The creep has lost a considerable amount of weight during his time at Sir Mac Memorial. Gacy stares straight ahead as every pair of eyes in the courtroom are trained upon him. Carippo bangs his gavel and announces the case. This is the people of the state of Illinois versus John Wayne Gacy. He greets the jury and explains to them that they will first be hearing opening remarks by both the state and the defense, followed by the state's case in chief. The jury listens intently. Carippo looks to the state's table and instructs them, you may proceed. Bob Egan rises from his seat and walks to the lectern situated directly in front of the jury box. He surveys the members of the jury for a moment, and then he begins. May it please the court, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. I want you to picture, if you will, a young boy. He's 15 years old. He's a sophomore in high school. He's a gymnast at the high school. In the evening, he works at a pharmacy. He works at the pharmacy because he's 15 and he wants to buy a car when he's 17. So he's saving his money. His name is Robert Peast. Now I want to take you back 14 months to a place called Nissan Drugs. Nissan Drugs is in the suburb of Des Plaines, Illinois, a suburb of Northwest Chicago. You passed it on your way in as you came in on the toll road. Robert Peast was working there on the night of December 11th, 1978. He was working there, stocking shelves and going about his usual duties. And there was someone else there, ladies and gentlemen. That somebody else was a contractor, 
this particular contractor had worked at this Nissan Drugs a couple years earlier, and he was called back to this Nissan to consult with them with regard to remodeling work. The contractor and Robert Peace had never met before, but the contractor went there in the early evening hours of December 11th. The contractor was John Gacy. He arrived at the drugstore, and during the course of some conversation that he was having with the owners of the drugstore and some other people, Robert Peace overheard him mention that he was hiring people for the summer at five to seven bucks an hour, and this was considerably more than Robert Peace made at the drugstore at the current time. The contractor left, and he came back to the drugstore at around 8.30 that evening. He came back because he had forgotten his appointment book. Now, when he came back, he had a conversation with various people in the store, and then he left the drugstore at 9 o'clock that evening. Robert Peast at that time said to himself that he's going to see if he can get himself a summer job. So he went out of the drugstore, and as he was going out of the drugstore, his mother was arriving. You see, it was her birthday, and she was picking him up because they were going to have a birthday party for her. When she arrived, he said, I got to see a guy about a job. Wait for me inside. So she went in, Robert Peast went out, and John Gacy was getting into his car. And Gacy motioned him into the car. He said, what do you want? Robbie said, I want to talk to you about a job. John said, how much time do you have? We can talk about it tonight. He thought, well, I want this job. Well, he said, I got about 30 minutes. Gacy said, let's take a ride and talk about it. So, we took a ride. And Gacy asked Rob, are you liberal? Rob said, yeah, I'm liberal. Gacy said, are you liberal about sex? Robbie answered, well, I like to think that I'm liberal about a lot of things. Gacy said, did you ever have sex with a man? Robbie said, no, I wouldn't do that. So they got to Gacy's house with Rob presumably thinking that they'd be filling out an employment application. He went into the house and he said, no, you can't have the job because you're not qualified for it. But would you like to make a fast 20? And Peace said, what do you mean? Gacy said, I want you to come in and have sex with me. Not necessarily in those words. Peace says, I, I wouldn't do that. Gacy said, well, it's all right. Let me show you some magic tricks. You see, I'm a clown. And he was, in fact, a clown. He said, I know a lot of magic tricks. Let me show you one. One that I call the handcuff trick. And he handcuffed Peast behind his back, totally immobilizing his arms. He put Peast on the bed and he pulled Peast's pants down. And he started orally copulating Robert Peast. But he wasn't getting the response he wanted, you see, because... Robert Peast was frightened to tears. He was whimpering, and that worried Gacy. He said, I don't want him going out of here telling somebody about this. He said, don't, don't cry, don't cry. I want to show you one more trick. I call it the rope trick. So he got behind Peast, and he took a piece of rope, and he put it around Robbie's neck, around his throat, and he tied a knot loosely. And then he tied another knot loosely. And then he left a little loop. And then tied one more knot. And Peace said, 
Why are you putting a rope around my neck? Gacy would later say, Why'd that kid ask me why I was putting a rope around his neck? Because he was stupid. Well, he put the rope around his neck, and Robert Peace soon found out why. Because then he inserted a small piece of pipe into the rope. Do you know how a tourniquet works? Well, this works the same way. He took the pipe and he twisted it. And then he twisted it again and again. And he held it there. And it did just what a tourniquet would do. It broke off the blood flow to the brain. It cracked the hyoid bone. No more air went to the lungs. Robbie Peace convulsed and he was dead in seconds. Then Gacy's phone rang. Gacy went to answer the phone. He said, hello. It was a business associate of his. You'll hear from him. He said, why weren't you at the business meeting we were supposed to have at 7 o'clock? Gacy said he didn't feel well and that he was tired, that he'd been working long hours recently, and that he's got an uncle who's sick, and he just didn't feel like it. But let's have breakfast in the morning. And Raphael said, okay. But then Gacy went back to his endeavors. He left peace on the floor, right in the bedroom, and went to bed the evening. At six o'clock the next morning, Gacy got up, threw peace over his shoulder, carried him up and stored him in the attic. And the next night, in the dark of night, he put peace in the trunk of his car, drove him out to the Displains River, and threw him over the bridge, like a bag of garbage. That, in and of itself, is not the horrible part of the story. The horrible part is that this was the last of 33 young men, people with their lives ahead of them, that John Gacy strangled, killed, and buried. You're going to hear the testimony during the course of this trial about these boys, being from different areas in and around Chicago. You will hear the word uptown. Uptown is an area on the north side along the lake, kind of a mixed area, having transients, a number of people from the south. What? Kind of a middle and lower working class sort of people. We're also going to hear the term Bughouse Square. Bughouse Square is just north of the Loop, a downtown area of Chicago. It's a small park, about a block in size. It's called Washington Park, really, but it got that name in Chicago because in the early years, it used to be a place where the soapbox harbingers of doom and crackpots would lecture, and whoever was there would gather around. Now, it's pretty much frequented by homosexuals. I mentioned that Gacy had killed 33 people. He started his rampage in 1972, and it took him six years, and it ended on December 11th, 1978 tells police that in January of 1972 that he was out seeing about picking somebody up. He went down to the Greyhound bus station downtown and he picked up a kid. He kind of started talking to the kid. Why don't we go to my house for a few drinks? And he took him to his house. And there he engaged in homosexual acts with the kid. After he did that, he fell asleep. And when he woke up, he said that this kid had a knife and that they struggled over the knife, and that he stabbed the kid twice and killed him. He was kind of wondering, well, what should I do now? And he decided that he needed to put the kid in the crawl space. 
He went down to the crawl space of his house and he buried right there, body number nine. Now you'll see a double X pattern there. This is to show that he poured a little concrete slab over where he had buried the kid. Now, when I say kid, I say this because he's not yet identified. But you're going to hear testimony about this kid. Just like John Gacy said, he had an inside wound on his sternum. It is a cut wound on his breastbone and on his ribs, which is compatible from dying of stab wounds. Time passes, and then, on July 31st of 1975, a boy named Johnny Bukovich disappears off the face of the earth. 18 years old, nice guy, has a lot of friends, and he's also employed by him. On the 31st of July, 1975, he goes over to pick up his paycheck at Gacy's house and then leaves with some of his friends. Later on, he leaves those friends, and nobody hears from him. After that, ever again, he came to rest under John Gacy's garage, and that's where he's found three years later. About 18 months after Bukovich, Daryl Sampson vanishes on April 6, 1976. Daryl was from the uptown area. He's a teenager with the usual rash of teenage problems. He was a runaway, but he always came back. That is, up until April 6, 1976. Then... He never came back. A month passed, and a very interesting thing happened on May 14th of 1976. There was a boy named Randall Reffitt. Randall was 15 years old. He came home after school one day, after stopping at the dentist, and said, Grandma, look at my new tooth. He'd gotten a cap, put on the front tooth, and then he went out to play, and he never came back. On the same day, May 14th of 1976, Samuel Stapleton, a kid from the same neighborhood, who worked at a pizza parlor six nights a week so that in two years he'd be able to buy a car. He left his house one night from his uptown area, walked a block to visit his sister. At 11 o'clock that night, he left his sister's house to go home. Yet, he never got there. He vanished off the face of the earth. Randall Reffitt? And Samuel Stapleton came to rest in common grave number six and seven in Gacy's crawl space. Three weeks later, June 3rd, 1976, Michael Bonin just finished a year in high school. He was 17 years old. He didn't have a summer job yet, so he was going to go out and paint his friend's garage. He left the house and said, I'm going over to my buddies to paint his garage. Never got there. Gone. What became of Michael? Well, he ended up his body, number 18. His fishing license ended up in Gacy's attic. William Carroll, 10 days later, a teenager from that uptown area on June 10th, 1976, he vanished off the face of the earth. Same type of kid. Teenager, had gotten into some trouble, but was trying to bring himself back. He was attending school, a school called the Prologue School in that area for kids that have problems. He was trying, but he never got the chance. He vanished and ended up as body number 22 in Gacy's graveyard. Two months later, August 6, 1976, an 18-year-old fellow by the name of Rick Johnston. Rick lived with his mom and dad out here in Bensonville. Rick was going with some friends to a concert at the Aragon Ballroom, which is an old ballroom converted into a place where they use for concerts now on the far north side of Chicago. 
same general area as the uptown area. He was going to this concert and Rick's mom said, it's a bad area down there, let me drive you. And if you have any problems afterwards, give me a call. So she drove him to the Aragon and he never gave her a call. And he never showed up again. He ended up as body number 23 in Gacy's graveyard. Four months later, Christmas is approaching, 1976, and a fellow by the name of Gregory Godzik was a boy who was 17 years old. He lived with his parents and worked for Gacy. He worked for Gacy helping him remodel drugstores and occasionally worked at Gacy's house. On December 12th, he went out on a date. He dropped the date off at 12.30 in the morning, and he never made it home. Before he left that night, he had said to his sister, Don't lock the door. But... He never made it home. They found his car at the intersection of Devon and Harlem, about two miles from Gacy's house. They found him, body number four, in Gacy's graveyard. Christmas 1976 came and went. So far, eight people had died that we know of. And then on June 20th, 1977, there was a boy named John Zick, who was a graduate of Maine West High School. His school was out in the northwest suburbs. He was 19. He'd gotten his own apartment, working as a reproduction clerk for a company on the north side. And he turned up missing from his own apartment. His parents went there. His clothes were there. His car wasn't there. Income tax forms were still spread out on the table. John Zick disappeared off the face of the earth. Gacy later would sell Zick's car to one of his employees saying it belonged to somebody that had passed away. About two months after that, John Prestige, who was a young man from Kalamazoo, Michigan, who came to Chicago occasionally to visit. And on May 15, 1977, he was staying with a young man on the north side. And he said to this young man, Hey, you know where Bughouse Square is? The guy said, Hey, John, don't go down there. That's not a good area to go to. Don't worry about it. And he left and he never came back. That is body number one in Gacy's graveyard. July 5th, 1977. Spring had turned to summer, and there was a young man by the name of Matthew Bowman. Matthew was 19 years old, was living with his parents, and on July 5th, he went down to the traffic court on the near north side of the loop to take care of something, and then he went to his sister's house. When he went to his sister's, he left there that evening, and he never got back. The summer passed, and the school year came. The school year for Robert Gilroy was not really different than any other school year. Robert Gilroy was 18 years old, and he was a high school graduate who lived with his father in the apartment complex about a mile west of where Gacy lived. Robert Gilroy was not going to college, but Gilroy had been a horse enthusiast. He used to go to the stables around the Chicago area, and he enrolled and got accepted into the Potomac Horse Center in Maryland, where people are taught to train horses. He had handled show horses, a talent in and of itself. A few days before he left to go to the Potomac Horse Center, Robert said to his father, I'm going up to the Blue Ribbon Stables tonight in Wheeling, which is a north suburb of Chicago. Well, Robert's father always warned him about hitchhiking. He didn't have a car, so he left that night and his father never saw him again. Body number 25. Ten days later, 
10 days passed, that is all. September 25th, 1977, John Mowry, a 19-year-old ex-Marine working at Ravenswood Bank. One day after dinner at his parents' house, he was feeling kind of depressed. And his folks said, well, if you want to stay here for the night, you can. He said, no, I have to get up in the morning. So he left, got into his car. A year later, his driver's license turned up in Gacy's attic. And his body turned up in Gacy's crawl space. October 17, 1977, a few weeks after that, a boy named Russell Nelson, a 21-year-old from a little town called Cloquet, Minnesota. Russell was staying with some friends here in Chicago on the north side. And one night, he went out saying that he was going to visit a disco in the Broadway and Belmont area of Chicago. He never came back. November 11, 1977, Robert Winch, another boy from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Robert was staying at a foster home in Kalamazoo. He was 16 years old. He ran away from the foster home. This wasn't the first time a 16-year-old had run away from a foster home. He ran away, and all anybody knew was that Robert had at one time talked about going to California. We know that he only made it as far as Chicago because Robert ended up as body number 11 in Gacy's graveyard. Another week passed. November 18, 1977, a young man named Tommy Bowling. Tommy was married with a child. He was a body and fender man. He was out of work at the time, but he had called his mother on the night of November 18th, and during that discussion, he told his mother that he was at a bar. He was never heard from again until his wife identified his wedding ring, which had been taken off body number 12 from Gacy's graveyard. Three weeks later, another Marine, David Talsma. He had been in the Marine Corps Reserves. He was 19 years old, living with his parents. One night, he left for a rock concert. He never came back again. Thus ended 1977. 17 boys dead so far that we know of. February 16th came, 1978. Gacy's last year of killing. There was a boy named William Kindred, 19 years old on the north side of Chicago. He saw his girlfriend every single day. So the first day his girlfriend didn't see him, she knew something was amiss. That night, he told his roommate that he was going to a bar. He was never heard from again until his body turned up, his body number 27. Summer came and the crawl space was filling up. June 30th, 1978, a young man by the name of Timothy O'Rourke. Tim lived on the north side and he told his roommate about a construction man that he had met in the suburbs. One evening, he went out, and he ended up in the Des Plaines River. Now, it's nearing the end of the killing now. November 4th, 1978, there was a young man by the name of Frank Landigan. Frank is 19. Frank lived with a girl in that same uptown north area of Chicago. As often happens, he had some sort of domestic dispute with his girlfriend, and she had him locked up on about November 1st. Now... They wanted to teach Frank a lesson, and they left him in there for a couple of days, and finally, he bonded out. He gets his bond receipt and goes out to make up with his girlfriend. He was last seen when he goes looking for her, walking down Foster Avenue, and he's never seen again until his body is found floating in the Des Plaines River, and his bond receipt is found in Gacy's house. 
Three weeks pass. Thanksgiving comes, and James Mazzara, a 21-year-old boy from Elmwood Park, which is another suburb up here northwest, he's living with some friends, and he comes home to have Thanksgiving dinner with his family. After Thanksgiving, he goes back to live with his friends on the north side, a few blocks away from Buckhouse Square, and he finds that he and his friends have been evicted because of some problems. James is last seen walking down the street with a suitcase in his hand. His next scene, as his body is pulled from the Displains River. Then there's Robert Peast, Gacy's last victim. His last victim of 33. One in 1975, seven in 1976, nine in 1977, and five in 1978. Now, if you're adding those up, and saying, hmm, that's only 22. Well, as I stand here and speak to you, efforts are continuing to identify 11 more young boys who were taken from that crawl space. 11 boys that we don't know who they are. All we know is that they were boys. All we know is that they ended up in Gacy's graveyard. Maybe because they were from out of state. Maybe because they were drifters. Maybe because their dental or medical records were never sent in because their parents just didn't want to know that they ended up at 8213 Somerdale. Now, Egan goes on to describe the investigation into Gacy that we have gone through so thoroughly that I don't see the point in repeating it. He does detail the first search, discusses the discovery of the photo receipt in Gacy's kitchen garbage, introduces the name of Kim Byers to the jury as the woman who borrowed Rob's jacket and placed the receipt therein, He covers the surveillance of Gacy. He details the story of Officer Schultz going into Gacy's house and smelling decaying flesh when the heat kicks on. He talks about Gacy's overnight visit to Amaranti's office. He covers the morning of the December 20th meeting where Cram allegedly told police that he'd been digging ditches in Gacy's crawl space and that there were mounds in the crawl space and that Gacy told him not to go near them, instructing him where to dig. All of which led to the warrant on the 21st. None of which, by the way, is true. He goes on to talk about the search on the 21st and the discovery of the first set of bones. He details the dig that went on for months and the identification process that is still going on. He then retreats and begins detailing Gacy's multiple statements to the police. He then begins honing in on the fact that it was Gacy himself that supplied the details that the jury has been hearing. Now, let's jump back into his opening. Quote, The judge mentioned to you that we would prove, and we will, that he killed all of these people and that he committed the crime of murder in killing these people. We will prove to you that John Gacy killed 33 people and we will prove to you that John Gacy murdered 33 boys because his actions were those of a thoughtful, rational premeditated evil man think for a second about the common things among these murders I will give you ten of them and you will find a lot more they were all boys rational planned and premeditated they all involved some talk of money planned and premeditated they all came in his car to go to his home after being picked up somehow planned and premeditated until early 1978 when he ran out of room. All of them were buried on his property. Most of them 
in the safety of his own home, surrounded by nothing but cement walls. And there are no windows here. Nobody can look in. Planned and premeditated. After that, after he ran out of space, all were thrown in the river. All were thrown in the same river at the same spot. At the same time of night, when it was dark and desolate and there was no traffic on the I-55 bridge, planned and premeditated. Each boy killed in his own way after the first. Each boy killed the same way. The rope trick, the rope around the neck, the knot, the second knot, the stick, the twist, the tourniquet, each the same way. Planned, mechanical, and premeditated. In each murder, the clothing or most of it is disposed of, planned and premeditated. In many of the murders, you will see he kept souvenirs, a driver's license, ring, fishing license. Here, there's Robert Peace's coat hidden under the floorboards, above the crawl space, planned and premeditated. Many of the bodies that were recovered either had cloth-like material stuffed in their mouth or a plastic bag over their head. Several of them still had the rope around their neck, planned and premeditated. We asked Gacy, why did you do that? He said, well, it was to keep the blood from draining out of the mouth and nose. So that is why he wanted the cloth in there or put the plastic bag over the head. Well, I guess if you kill 33 people after a while, you'd think you'd get good at it. How about the burial themselves? Take the first two. Remember, they were killed early on, buried in the shed, an area he was already working on, or the back dining room of the house, in addition to the house that he was working on. Convenience, planning, rational thought. How about the crawl space itself? This wasn't a matter of taking the body down and burying it wherever it happened to be laying. He dug trenches, seven bodies buried along the south trench, two trenches, five in this one and three in this one. Trenches along here, four in the trench along the east wall, and another bunch, a cluster underneath where the crawl space was. It was convenience and planning. He planned ahead. He was asked by the police, why did he have cram in the trenches? And his answer, because I wanted to have graves available. Planning. He mentioned during the course of his statements, you know, a lot of these police officers think that I put the lime down there to take care of the bodies. No, no, not John Gacy. He's too smart for that. He poured muriatic acid on the bodies when he put them in. Muriatic acid is for those of you who don't know, is for cleaning cement. The lime was to take care of the smell. Planning thoughtfulness, these are the acts of a planner. Yes, the murders and the burials were all planned. These are the actions of an evil, evil rational man. He even tells us in one of his statements why he did it. He said, well, every time I kill somebody, he always had asked me for money or they had threatened to expose me to my neighbors as a homosexual or they became remorseful after the act and I thought that they might expose me to the neighbors, so I had to kill them. I'm reminded sitting around on a hot summer day and there's a fly buzzing around your head. It's kind of buzzing there. It's, it's not really a threat to you, can't hurt you, but it is kind of a pest, so you swat it. Gacy swatted 33 people out of his life because they were a pest, because they might expose him, because 
he wanted more money for the sex act. That kind of pestered John. It's kind of an inconvenience to him. So, he killed them. He killed them just like swatting flies. You know, in 1980, I'm certain that if it was possible to have a computer doing the job that you're doing right here, right now, we would no doubt have a big univac something sitting in that jury box. That is not possible because man in all of his wisdom and technology has not figured out yet how to program a computer with common sense. It can't be done. This is why you people are here, because you people have common sense. I ask you to use your common sense when you evaluate the testimony of the psychiatrist. Egan goes on to discuss briefly all of the different witnesses that the jury can expect to hear from. The friends, the neighbors, the business associates, other victims, all of which will demonstrate that Gacy was a rational man who was methodical and planned his every move. He wraps up his opening with the following. Everybody here has heard a lot about this case. We all know it. We all know it exists. We know it has gotten a lot of attention. It's a big case. You can see all the people here in this courtroom, press people and so on. Let's not forget why we are here. We are here because 33 young boys are dead. We are here because there are 33 lives, 33 citizens that are no longer with us. We're here because each and every one of those citizens had the right to live. The ones who were in their very formative years were a little mixed up and had the right to straighten their lives out and to make themselves good members of society. The ones whose lives were not mixed up had the right to continue their lives and become productive, useful members of society. We lost 33 of our citizens, our friends, people who walked among us, 33 people who God put on this earth because they had a right to live and who John Gacy snuffed out because they were inconvenient to him. If there is another man more evil than John Gacy among us, God help us all. With that, Egan takes a seat. Garippo takes a short recess. When court is reconvened, Mata Sr. takes his place at the podium. And this is his opening statement. May it please the court, Your Honor, Mr. Amaranti, gentlemen for the prosecution, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. In the state's opening remarks, they methodically went through the deaths of 33 different individuals. John Bukovich, John Zick, Gregory Godset, Rick Johnson, Frank Landigan, James Mazzara, Robert Gilroy, William Carroll, John Mowry, Robert Peast, Michael Bonin, Robert Nelson, Timothy O'Rourke, Matthew Bowman, Randall Raffet, William Kendred, John Prestige, Thomas Bowling, David Talsima, Richard Winch, Sam Stapleton, Russell Nelson. The fact of death is a final one. I don't think there's any question in anybody's mind that the parents of these boys, mothers and fathers, had any idea when they gave birth to these children that they would end up dead in that crawl space. 
The loss of their parents is a great one. The loss of us is a great one. That no man is an island. Not you or I, but every man's death diminishes us in some way. We feel a loss, but no amount of vengeance or anger or sympathy can ever bring those boys back to life. Nothing will bring them back. They are gone. It is final. We are here to decide certain issues in this case, certain vital issues of life and death. Those issues must be decided by you without any sympathy whatsoever, without any feeling or desire for revenge. And I know we are human beings and that it is difficult to think in those terms. When we selected you as jurors, you made representations to us, both the defense and the state, and you told us that you would be fair and that you would leave your bias and your prejudice and your preconceived notions out of the courtroom and out of your deliberations. I didn't say it was going to be easy, and it won't be, but I ask you to operate as a computer, but plug in your own common sense. If you decide this case through revenge or anger, then you will not be able to decide it objectively. Your revenge will not bring back any one of those boys. The state has gone through a rather lengthy explanation as to each of the 33 bodies that was recovered. They said that because they were buried in the house in a certain fashion, that showed premeditation. If you look at the evidence and consider that this is a house I'm going to take you back a few years, too. Put yourself in that house, and you try to conceive of living there with 29 bodies, 28 under it, and one in the garage. Try and determine whether or not, with your common sense, avoiding all the psychiatric testimony, just with your common sense, that evidence that the state will introduce bespeaks of a sound mind. Consider further that this was done over and over and over and over again in the same manner. Is this premeditation or is it obsession? Is it compulsion? The device of a deeply sick individual? Certainly there is a pattern, but it doesn't show premeditation. It shows a profound, incredible obsession. 30-inch cross space. The evidence will show these bodies were taken down there. You can't stand up down there. You have to dig with your hands over and over and over again. Sure, Mr. Gacy collected souvenirs. He collected bodies. These facts, the state will show you. A collector of bodies. What made him do it is something that we will demonstrate to you. The question why is the most important question because in order for you to reach a decision, a decision based on sound judgment, a decision based not on prejudice, not on anger, not for a desire for revenge or vengeance, but a decision based on common sense, looking at the entire picture and then coming to a conclusion. We will hear a lot of evidence great detail that John Gacy went out in the evening, picked up boys, and these boys were all in the same category. Certain age groups, certain body build, certain color hair, certain sexual preference. He took them back to his house, and you will see from his statements that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Certainly Mr. Amaranti was there, Mr. Stevens was there. The statements were given by Mr. Gacy on several different occasions. And when you look closely at those statements, you will see 
that the physical evidence that the state has accumulated, now the physical evidence is there. It is uncontrovertible. The statements do not fit with the physical evidence. It is another indication that Mr. Gacy doesn't know what he's talking about. How do you tell whether somebody is evil or whether somebody is insane? You can tell by looking at the totality of the circumstances at everything. You don't hang your head on a few pieces of evidence. You have to see the forest, not just the trees, the entire picture. If a man appears to be normal in every way, and he can drive a car and he can put food on the table, does that mean he doesn't have terminal cancer? Is he healthy? No, but you can't see it. If a man appears normal and does certain things in a very methodical way, does that make him a premeditated murderer? Or is it an indication that he is obsessed, that he is profoundly and deeply ill? He does the same thing over and over and over again. He sleeps with corpses. He lives in a house with bodies under it for years. The state referred to the fact that when Mr. John Gacy was being tailed, that he became friendly with the officers and that he invited them into the house. Does that make sense? I mean, if you have 28 bodies buried in your house and you're trying to hide it, You've gotten police telling you constantly, if you're rational, you bring them right into your house. You will find that when looking at the statements that Mr. Gacy gave, that his memory is sketchy and that what he did remember, if he remembered, was supposition on his part and that he does not fit the evidence whatsoever. You talk about a fly buzzing around your head, swat it down, that's an instinctive act. That is what drives, that is some primal thing that makes you do it. It is not a premeditated act. Well, that is what Mr. Gacy did, swatted them down in this, that manner. It shows absolutely no intent whatsoever. It does show impulse. There are many issues you must decide in this case. The state has mentioned murder. Certainly they must prove each and every element of murder will be an issue for you to decide whether or not it was committed and whether or not my client in fact committed it. As part of that, one of the elements that you must decide with regard to that is one of intent. You must have intended to do what is charged with doing. Historically, that has meant that a person has a conscious awareness is to come to some end to do something. It goes way back to concept of mens rea, a guilty or evil mind. Unless the state can show that Mr. Gacy had the intent, had an evil mind, which is apparently what they are attempting to show, that he was evil, that any act he committed, he will not be all responsible for. The guilty mind must accompany the bad act. You take the total picture of what Mr. Gacy is charged with, and that in and of itself speaks of a mind that is deranged that isn't normal and by any standards whatsoever, whether it be legal standard, medical standard, he is abnormal. We will show that he was incapable of forming an intent because of a deep, profound mental disease by qualified psychiatrists. And yes, we will tell you of their qualifications and their credentials because that is the only way you can determine credibility. They will testify that Mr. Dacey is incapable of forming an intent 
because his intelligence and his thought process were helpless against a consuming mental disease that infected his mind that existed continuously for many, many years. It was chronic and severe. A person doesn't have to be a raging maniac with eyes bugging out to be insane. The defense will present the issue of insanity, and the law that you must follow is that a person is not criminally responsible for his conduct if, at the time of such conduct, as a result of a mental disease or defect, he lacked the substantial capacity either to appreciate the criminality of his act or conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. The evidence will show that John Gacy, under any standard, whether it be that standard of your own good conscience or common sense, the evidence will show undeniably that he could not control his conduct. The first aspect of that issue will be for you to decide whether or not Gacy, in fact, had a mental disease. The evidence will show unequivocally that Mr. Gacy suffered and suffered intensely for many years from a chronic mental illness that persisted then as it does now. We have four psychiatrists who will testify in court. Tobias Broker, who is from the Menninger Institute in Topeka, Kansas. It is one of the foremost for forensic psychiatrists in the country. He is the director of that institute. Dr. Richard Ravaport, a psychiatrist in private practice here in Chicago, who has dealt with the Department of Corrections in the prison system for many years. He has an extensive background in forensic psychiatry. Forensic means psychiatry as applied to the law. We have Dr. Helen Morrison, who is an expert on mass murderers. She consults with Loyola University and has written many, many books and articles regarding the subject. We have Dr. Lawrence Friedman, who is the chairman of the Behavioral and Social Clinic at the University of Chicago. The University of Chicago is one of the finest education and medical facilities in the country. All four of the psychiatrists, yes, have credentials because you have to decide where the truth lies. These psychiatrists will testify that Mr. Gacy demonstrates a host of seemingly neurotic symptoms. His compulsive work, obsession with detailed sexual deviant compulsions, and appropriateness of his feelings, all that indicate the personality of a pseudo-neurotic schizophrenic paranoid. He has been and will continue to be dangerous. He requires intensive psychiatric treatment within an institution for the rest of his life. The evidence will further show that he is a pre-psychotic borderline personality, obsessive-compulsive schizoid personality, sexual perversion based on progressive schizophrenic process. He's a profound psychopathology, not limited to one diagnosis, but at best he suffers from a psychosis with a paranoid intermittent thought process layered by a borderline syndrome of low-level functioning. We will have psychiatrists to explain this all. No matter what you determine, when it comes down to the bottom line, it doesn't make any difference if you call him paranoid schizophrenic or antisocial personality or schizoid personality or borderline. What does matter is that you can't label him. He is an anomaly. He is abnormal. He is dangerous and incomprehensibly ill. Once you determine that Mr. Gacy has, in fact, a mental disease, then you must decide whether he lacks substantial capacity to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. 
And again, these psychiatrists will testify that he was unable to fully and consciously control his acts, which are motivated by overwhelming and uncontrollable primitive drives. They're not going to get on the witness stand and say that he is crazy sometimes and he's not crazy the other times. You're going to say that he's crazy all the time. Except because of his inintelligence, he is able to control during his working hours that he worked obsessively long hours that he entertained as a clown. In fact, he tried unconsciously to consume all of his time as knew something was happening and he couldn't help it. I want to reiterate once again the facts of this case, the number of people dead, the sympathy that may arouse the witnesses that may take the stand to the life and death of their children. It is simply that for the purpose of establishing that death has occurred. Don't allow it to let sympathy into your judgment. That may sound cold and cruel, but that is the way the law is. Mr. Gacy, will you stand up? The defense evidence will show you this man This is the man that you are here to judge. This is John Gacy. He's the man that has horrified the public. Some people hate him, some people want vengeance. He has angered most of the world. His mother had no idea when she begat him that he would be standing here hated and despised by the entire world. Somewhere in the infinite processes that go into making of a boy and a man, something slipped. Any number of reasons reached back to the very beginning might have been a factor in the distortion of his mind. These facts you must know in order for you to decide his fate, in order for you to decide whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. Various witnesses will testify, family, friends, business associates, psychiatrists, and yes, John had a family. He had friends. He had business associates. These witnesses will establish that he was born on March 17, 1942. He was one of three children. He had a younger sister, two years younger, and an older sister. They will testify that John Gacy, as a young boy, was intelligent, friendly, outgoing, that he cared for people. In fact, the evidence will show an everyday average human being. But evidence will show something else something deep and dark, repressed, hidden from me, hidden from you, an unconscious and uncontrollable rage and illness, a disease of the mind so profound that is almost unimaginable, as are the acts that he is accused of doing. The evidence will further show his extensive medical history and how it fits in the total picture of him. We will take John through his young years, his adolescence, his high school, his marriage, his successes, his failures, and in fact, evidence will show every aspect of his life, positive and negative, the good and the bad, everything that had an effect on the intricate process of human development. We will show the facts that started something in John that would eventually cause sorrow for many people and culminate in his arrest and his being in this courtroom today. The evidence will show that John Gacy was not a fake, not a facade. His life was not a lie, a sham, a cover-up, not a cover-up to hide a dark, malignant, evil heart. The evidence will show that his acts were not premeditated, but uncontrollable and compulsive. The evidence will show that his acts were of an insane mind, acts that he couldn't stop, 
had no control over whether or not he wakes up in the morning and he finds a body in his house and he buries it. He goes to work like nothing happened because there is a deep split in his emotions. He is repressed. Certainly no one wants to go to prison. The fear of going to prison, he had the bodies, but he was not charged with concealing homicide. He was charged with murder. The fact that he compulsively and uncontrollably with method and pattern obsessively buried the bodies in his house, collected then, lived with them is certainly not proof of murder because he couldn't stop himself. He couldn't stop himself until he was arrested and relieved, taken out of society, arrested for the murder of Rob Peast. When you look at the evidence, and it will be strikingly apparent that does not fit into the pattern that dictated his acts in the past. You don't go out and kill 33 people for fun. That's ludicrous. There is something profoundly wrong. As a matter of fact, the evidence will show that Mr. Amorani and myself approached Dr. Jan Fawcett, who is on the state's list of witnesses and is the head of the psychiatric department at Press St. Luke and of the Isaac Race Center, asked him to examine our client. And we were told that in no uncertain terms that the cause was too unpopular and the board of trustees would not allow Isaac Race Center get involved with the defense or examine the defendant. I guess it wasn't too unpopular for Isaac Race Center to come and testify for the state. They wouldn't even examine my client. Clearly a bias. The evidence will further show that Dr. James Cavanaugh has advocated the abolition of insanity defense. It will show that Dr. James Cavanaugh is convinced by the statements to the press newspaper article that only 1 to 2% of the criminal population is suffering from serious mental illness and our clad and flexible bias he's got. The evidence will show that Dr. Cavanaugh submitted a report regarding John Gacy and in fact, his report was not a scientific or medical document, but was a moral judgment attempting to sentence my client to the electric chair. When we go through the report on the witness stand, that will become apparent. Evidence will show that Dr. James Cavanaugh has, in fact, become a professional witness for the state. The most vital issue in this case is one of criminal responsibility and sanity right to the bottom line. Let's forget about everything else and what we do here. I mean, what do we do? Pull the switch and get rid of it that way? Or do we commit ourselves to our laws, the laws that our legislators have enacted for us? I mean, it's time to commit ourselves to something. This case has brought into focus all the issues that we have concerned about for the past decades. Whether it's about time that we do something about it and commit ourselves to our laws, and if we don't like this law, well, we've got to follow it anyway. Don't hang your head on a bunch of details, on the fact that he can't drive a car, or that he can't hold a job, or that makes him okay. Look at the forest. We've got to find out where the truth lies here, how either he is evil or he's crazy. And what does the state have to show you that he is evil? Think about it. Look for the facts. The insanity defense has been looked upon as an escape, a defense of last resort. The defense of insanity is valid and it is the only defense that we can use here because that is where the truth lies. And whether you like it or not, it's your law. 
The defense evidence will show that state psychiatrists Dr. Reeveman and Dr. Kavanaugh and the other three have made the most superficial diagnosis, antisocial personality sociopath. It will become obvious that this is their most favorite diagnosis. It is the most superficial diagnosis. It is a catch-all. It's general. It's overbroad. The evidence will show that Dr. Reefman and Dr. Kavanaugh and the rest of them have dismissed or ignored the most significant psychological and psychiatric science symptoms in their effort to make John Gacy sane. They have just ignored everything. But don't you ignore it. The evidence will show that their diagnosis is ludicrous. They will make this a war of semantics. Labels, antisocial, psychotic, borderline, paranoid, schizophrenic. Look at reality. The evidence will show clearly without any doubt or, or doubt whatsoever that John Gacy is sane by any standard of the law of medicine, any standard you choose, common sense. The most important thing probably here, if we do away with labels, if he is not deranged, if he is not mentally ill, if he is normal, then our concept of normality is totally distorted. This man belongs in a hospital for the rest of his life. Vengeance is going to bring back Robert Peace. He won't walk through that door whether you pull a swish on him or not. So don't use vengeance of James Mazzara or Robert Wunsch or for any of them. Sympathy has no place here. It is not to say that we don't all have the sympathy and empathy, but it can't be part of your deliberation. I will say again that when we selected you as sure, you said you would be fair, open-minded, that you would follow the law, that you would set aside your bias, your preconceived notions, would not enter your deliberation. Well, I am going to expect at least that from you. We have issues here of life and death. Don't repay injury with injury. Reach beyond, reach deeply. Ask why, find out why, and maybe we can stop it from happening again. You just want to get rid of it. Put it out of your mind. Forget it. Bang. Let's just pull the switch. He's evil. Forget about everything. Then we're not going to learn anything. We're going to take it ten steps backwards right into our cruel past. John Gacy's life is in your hands, and each of you gave your commitment to your God and to your laws and yourself. Ensure this man justice, no matter how difficult it may be to divest prejudice and sympathy from your mind and ensure justice for the future. I mean, these aren't a bunch of words. You must decide. You must make your decision at the end of this case. You will be asked to do that. It's inevitable for you. You must decide it without vengeance. Don't see through anger. Use cool, sound judgment. Because if you decide that he must be punished rather than treated, that will be far more irrational than any act he has committed or could commit. I thank you. My father takes one long last look at all the jurors in the box, and he turns and walks back to the council table, mentally and emotionally spent. He looks up at the jury from the table, searching each and every one of their faces for some semblance, some hint that what he had just said to them maybe struck a chord, maybe broke through and changed their thought process about this case. Only time will tell. So as the opening statements took most of the first day of trial, 
Grippo recesses the proceedings until the following and we will do the same. Be sure to join us for the final episode of the Gacy Tapes as the trial of the century continues and concludes and the verdict is handed down. Thank you all for joining us on this long journey because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next time. Okay, we know where the body's at. We know, know exactly where the body's at.